but as Tom said, yeah, I work for Campus Outreach, and this is my seventh year on staff with the ministry, and if you're not familiar with my story or the way I grew up or if you're new here, I grew up in Roselawn, Indiana, so just a little bit further south of here, although most of my family's from Lowell. Didn't grow up in a Christian home, didn't grow up going to church with the Bible, hearing about Jesus, and then my first day of my freshman year of college, a student who is at Indy, Indianapolis, in Indianapolis with me, shared the gospel with me, and I became a Christian my freshman year of college. And during my freshman year of college, I, I epiphany is a super fancy word. I, I probably wouldn't say it was an epiphany, but just a, an understanding of there are thousands of other college students on this campus who did not grow up in a Christian home, or some who did, who did not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, and that they right now are on, as we just sang, on a, a trajectory towards an eternity away from Christ, away from God. And unless someone goes to them and tells them about Jesus, they're not going to hear about him. Like, I didn't hear about him for 18 years until a 20-year-old asked me to play flag football and came to my dorm room and shared the gospel with me. So I thought, how hard could it be? And, you know, honestly, one of the things that Andy wanted me to talk about was outreach, and outreach is not a hard thing. It's just terrifying. So they're different. <laughs> they're different, right? It's like, uh, it's, it's a very simple thing. It's you just go to someone and you talk to them about what you love. It's just really scary. And so for the last 10 years, every day I go to work really scared, to be completely honest with you. Uh, and I step out on faith because I, I really believe the promises of God. And I believe that people need to hear about the faith that we that we cling to and about what Jesus promises. So that's what I do. And the, the amazing thing about college ministry, this really is amazing. I'm the only person that gets older. So I'm there and everyone else is 18 to 22. And I've been there now for seven years. I'm one of the longest tenured staff people, if, if you can believe that, if you've known me for a long time. And day in, day out, everyone's 18 to 22. They keep graduating. I keep staying there. And by God's grace, I'm still able to kind of hold my own a little bit. Um, but just a, a little bit of a family update, too. So my wife is finishing up her uh, FNP degree, a nurse practitioner degree through the University of Cincinnati. So she's an absolute rock star, and she's an amazing mom, wife, and um, also tackling full-time grad school. And we have a daughter, Cora. She's four, and she is obsessed with pizza. And we just have a blast. I don't, know, I don't know if they have one of these up in Northwest Indiana yet, but it's like Blaze Pizza or Asia Pizza, but it's kind of like the subway of pizza where you go up and they, you know, you tell them your toppings, they throw it in the oven, make it for you on the spot. So fun. Cora has a blast going there. She eats her cookie first, then eats her pizza. And I'm a no rules kind of dad. So if you want to eat your cookie first, you know, don't judge my parenting. Um, but Griffin, our son, turns two next week, and he loves our chickens. So Jen and I got chickens. We live in a city of 100,000 people. And Jen has been, we need to get a dog. We need to get a dog. I'm like, I'm not getting a dog. I'm not doing it. So I compromised and got chickens. And, and that, that might sound crazy to you, but chickens are like the best pets ever because you don't actually have to have any emotional relationship with them. They just, like, sit in the corner of your yard and lay eggs and peck around and stuff like that. So, uh, but he loves our chickens. He'll just go in the coop and chase them around, and uh, we 
we get donuts together every Friday and we have a blast. So um, I know you've been in a study the past few weeks on the study of God's word, and that'll be something that you'll be going on with the next couple weeks. But when you're in a study of God's word, you're going to hear a lot of things. We're going to talk about uh, the authenticity of scripture. We're going to talk about the historicity of scripture, the power of scripture. And something that I just want to talk about this morning is the transforming nature of God's word. And and I'm sure this is something that is not only talked about each week, but something you're experiencing each week as you open up God's word and hear it preached and apply it to your life. But one of those well-known verses that talks about this promise of God's transforming nature through his word is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Maybe you've heard this verse before or read this verse or studied this verse or maybe even have it on like a, a coffee mug or a t-shirt. It is, it is one of those staple verses in the Bible that you see often. And I think it's an important thing to study as you know God's word and have, it, have an understanding of that. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to talk about the transforming nature of God's word and how it calls us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. So this is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm reading from the ESV. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray that God would be here with us this morning. God, we are so thankful for your word, about the truth and the promises and the power that comes from it. And and even just thinking about my own story, that it was was your word that was presented to me. And as Dominion did in this room, that you present your word to us each week and, and every day. And that we know that you're present these moments, and so as we study Romans 12, 1 and 2 this morning, God, I pray that you would be here with us, and God, that you would help us to see your mercies and to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, and God, help us to transform and renew our minds, God, that we would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul starts off Romans chapter 12 by saying, I appeal to you, and it's always good to take note when you see something like this, similar to when Jesus says something like, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus doesn't waste words when he talks, and neither does Paul. And so when he says, I appeal to you, he's saying, listen, because I'm about to make an argument to you. This might sound shocking, so I want you to know what I'm about to say really matters. It might be surprising to you, but stick with me and listen. Followed by the word, therefore. And I'm Finishing up seminary now, although it's, I, I don't consider it to be like some super impressive accomplishment, but you, you learn a few things, and, and therefore is one of those words that in your hermeneutics classes are highlighted often, and something important for all of us to know as we read God's word, when we see the word therefore, because it's easy to just say, hey, flip to Romans 12, 1 and 2 and read the passage and, and learn from it, but you see the word therefore, and when you see the word therefore, what you're supposed to do is see why the word therefore is therefore. Simple. And the reason is, is because what he's about to say is an argument based on what he just wrote. So when you see therefore, look back. 
And see, what he's about to say is an argument based on what he's already written. So we look at therefore, and why is it there? If you've ever read Romans, it's considered Paul's uh, triumphant letter, the king of the epistles. So much of our life and doctrine comes from the book of Romans. So when you hear things, doc, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the five solas, some of those fancy theological terms, a lot of that is taken from the book of Romans. It is, is a monster of the epistles. There's so much to it. And really, Romans, you could cut it into two different sections. And the first is Romans chapters 1 through 11. So if you ever study Romans, take note of Romans 1 through 11. And the best way to summarize those chapters are, it's doctrine. You're learning about who God is, what sin is, how God saves us. All of that comes through Romans 1 through 11. And then 12 through 16 is about life. It's application. Here is how you now live as a result of the doctrine that you've trusted in. You've trusted in Christ. Now here is how you live. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 serves as the hinge between those two sections. So Paul's saying, here's what you need to believe about God and man and Christ. Here's how you come to saving faith. The hinge, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now here's how you live as a Christian. And I love books. I love reading. I love movies. Is anyone a Harry Potter fan in here? Are there Harry Potter fans? Okay. I love the Harry Potter books. I, I will assume you're all Harry Potter fans, even if you didn't give me any sort of affirmation that you are. If you're not, you should be, but if you don't want to be, then just take your favorite book and, and work with me on this one. So I read the Harry Potter books as a kid, and I mean, I loved it. I loved it. But I want, I want you to imagine that you've never read the Harry Potter books before or your favorite book, Chronicles of Narnia, fill in the blank. And I were just to give you the last couple pages of the story of Harry Potter. What would you know? What would you learn about Harry Potter as a result of the last couple pages of the seventh book, The Deathly Hallows? Well, you would learn a lot, actually. You would learn that Harry Potter survives, that he is married, that he has kids, that he has friends, and that he defeated evil. And if I were to give you that summary, you would think, I know the whole story. And in some ways you would, but if I said, read the first seven books first, what would happen is, is you would gain a full context and understanding of the life of Harry Potter. You'd see how he was raised and how his mother sacrificed herself for him and how he conquers all of these unique trials leading up to those last pages where he defeats evil, is married, has kids, lives happily ever after, right? The same is true when we study the Bible is I can just give you these two verses, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But in order to truly love and understand the book of Romans and these two verses, you need to know what's happening in the first 11 chapters. You need to have an understanding of what is happening in the book to lead you to that last page where you can say, this is why Paul is saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul's making an argument based off of the whole book. But we get to Romans chapter 12, we see what Paul's saying, and that is, Jesus Christ lived for you, he died for you, God is holy and sovereign, 
trust in Christ now, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God. So, Paul gets to the mercies of God early on in chapter 12 and says, before present your bodies as a living sacrifice, do it by the mercies of God. When you hear that, the mercy of God, what do you think of? What, what is mercy to you? Or, or how do you understand mercy? Uh, often, it's, it's a kind of a hard word to understand because we don't see ourselves in instances often where we have to extend a great mercy to someone else. But Jesus, in the Gospels, often talks in what we call parables. And what a parable is, is it's a story. And Jesus, just like me, loves stories and commu- can communicate a lot through a story. And a parable is a story that conveys a truth. And so before we dive into the rest of Romans 12, I would like to go to one of these parables and help us to understand mercy a little bit more. Because when Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's, he says you must do it by God's mercy. So what is God's mercy? If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 18, or you can just hear me read it. But Jesus gives a story or a parable to help us as Christians, followers of Jesus, understand what mercy is. Matthew 18, 23 through 35. Therefore, so he says the word therefore again, Jesus and Paul, they both do it. I'm not going to go through the spiel again there. Uh, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Jesus tells a story, three main characters and three main themes. We have the king, the first servant, and the second servant. I'm going to set a stage with all three and see what Jesus is teaching us about what mercy is and what it looks like for us. So there's a king, and the king is collecting debts. He's going around, he's bringing people to him who owe him money, and he's collecting the debts. So the first servant is brought to the king, and he owes the king 10,000 talents. If you're with me, you're tracking, but you're like, I have no idea what a talent is. What is that? What does that mean? How much is that? I also didn't know what it means. I looked it up. 
and a talent is the equivalent of 20 years wages. 20 years wages. So the average person in America is making around $20 an hour, which is about $41,000 a year. So 41,000 times 20 is one talent. So 41,000 times 20 times 10,000. So I did the math on what that is, and that's 832,000 times 10,000. My calculator says that's 8.32 E9. I don't know what E9 is. I just know it's a lot. So if, if you're a, a, a math or calculator scholar, you can tell me afterwards what E9 is. I just know it's a lot of zeros, and it's a number that is so significant and past 8 billion. So the reason why this is so significant is why did, why did Jesus say this outlandish financial number? The reason is because Jesus is trying to make a point. And the point is that the servant owes the king a debt he could never repay. The number is so high because the debt is unpayable. And what does the king do? He says, you owe me this debt, and you're going to pay it back with the only thing you have to give me, which is your life and the life of everyone you love. Significant payment. Your whole family is going to have to pay this debt with your life. What does the servant do? What we would do. He gets on his knees and he pleads and says, forgive me, please, please forgive me. I'll, I'll do whatever I can. I'll pay back the debt. The king, knowing the servant could never pay this debt back, 8.32 E9, can't pay it back. Justice would have been pay the debt. But the king extends mercy. And mercy is, you don't even have to pay any of it. The debt's forgiven. Go live. He extends mercy to the servant. Amazing enough, this is what Jesus does for us, is we owe God, as a result of our sin, an unforgivable debt. We can't work and pay it off. Our sin is so egregious to God that no matter how many times you go to church, no matter how diligently you study your Bible, no matter how many kind things you do for people, how much money you give away, how great of a person you are, you can never pay back the debt that you owe God. Which is why Jesus came in the first place. If our debt was forgivable or payable on our own works, Jesus would have never had to come. But Jesus comes, he lives a perfect sinless life and dies so that he can extend mercy to us. Because our debt before God is 8.32 E9. And we need someone to come extend mercy to us. But that's not where the story ends. Second scene happens. The servant's released. He's free of his debt. He doesn't even have to work and pay it off. He's forgiven. But the servant, he probably still has some bills to pay, and people owe him money. So the servant goes and finds a servant who owes him money, and that fellow servant owes him 100 denarii. Again, we have no idea what that is. It's currency used 2,000 years ago. And a denarii is a day's wage. So what's 100 denarii? Do the math. It's $15,000. I don't know about you. $15,000 is a lot of money to me. I'd want my $15,000. So the man goes to the servant who owes him $15,000. servant says, I'll pay you back. I don't have the money now, but I'll work it. $15,000. 
you know, a 10% of what an average person student loans are. So you're paying that money back. So he goes to him, says, have patience with me. I'll pay you. But the forgiven servant, so angered by this debt that can't be repaid, begins to choke the servant who owes him $15,000 and says, pay me. And he can't. He throws him in jail. Says, you'll sit here until you can pay my debt back. In the third scene, we see that other people see this situation unfold, and they're like, wait, isn't that the guy that just had all of that debt forgiven, the 8.329? And he just threw another guy in prison for owing a significantly less amount of money? So the king summons the servant who he just forgave. Said, How could you do this? I just extended mercy to you. And you couldn't extend it to someone who owed you far less than you owed me. And Jesus immediately cuts off the parable after saying the, the forgiven servant was going to prison. And says, so will my heavenly father do to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother who sins, you, sins against you. Whoa, right? Like, it's hard. That's hard. It's hard to forgive people. It's really hard to forgive people. I'm just speaking out of personal experience. What's amazing, the point Jesus is trying to make is we have an unforgivable debt before God. God, through Jesus, forgives us of that debt and then calls us to live in light of that forgiveness and forgive others and says more or less that you will be able to judge the state of your relationship with God by the fruit of your life with other people. And we just saying about that in another song. Keep referencing songs that we sing, but you can tell who's a believer by the way that they love one another, right? So have you experienced the king's mercy that the king extended to the first servant, that 8.329 debt? Have you experienced that debt forgiven of you? And if you have, how is that being played out in your life? Is it, is it reflected in the way that you treat and talk and think about other people, the way that you live your life? Have you experienced God's mercy? And again, why are we talking about God's mercy? Because in Romans 12, 1 and 2, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So now we're going to talk about presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. But before we get there, remember, what precedes presenting your body as a living sacrifice, what precedes living a Christian life, is coming into a relationship with God as a result of his mercy. And again, what, is it, what does it mean to know mercy? It's one thing to cognitively, intellectually be able to explain something. It's another thing to experience it. As many of you know, I'm a, a pretty diehard Chicago Bears fan. And so I got to talk about this a little bit today. But the Chicago Bears just had an amazing moment on Thursday, right? I don't know if you're – but they drafted Justin Fields. The, I, I probably shouldn't say what I was about to say. I was about to say, the savior of the Chicago Bears. And, you know, you, you, got, you got to be careful saying things like that. Because uh, Jen is like, if you buy his jersey, you will curse him. So we are a super, we're, we're a superstitious family with our, with our Bears fandom. But I have been watching Justin Fields' highlights for the last three days, anticipating him coming to Chicago. And I know a lot about him. I know how fast he is. I know how far he can throw a football. I know how accurate he is. I know the big games that he won in college. I know he's from Georgia. I watched a documentary on his high school football career. I know Justin Fields. 
But if Justin Fields walked in here today, he would not know me from the other two million people that are watching his highlight films right now, excited for him to come to Chicago. I know him, but do I really know him? No, we have no relationship. The same is true with our experience with God's mercy. You can understand something intellectually. You can read a lot about it. But it's another thing when you come into this and experience with it. And you have an understanding through actually being forgiven. Come into that relationship with him. So Paul then says, as a result of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And often in the church or as Christians, we talk about living sacrificially fairly often. And when we think about living sacrificially, when someone tells you to, to live sacrificially as a Christian, you often think about the things that you need to do. Okay, so I need to live sacrificially. That means I need to uh, be sacrificial with my money. So I, I want to give it to charitable causes that I care about or to people who are in need, want to be benevolent, and that is a really good thing. Uh, or we think of our time. We have a friend who's in trouble. Uh, his car's in a ditch. I'm the only person who owns a truck. So I'm going to drive out there. I'm going to pull him out. And you're being sacrificial with your time. It's hard to get out of bed and help people. Uh, or maybe being sacrificial is something tangible. Uh, a couple of years ago, someone gave my wife and I a car. Just called me one day and said, hey, do you guys need a car? Yeah, my car doesn't have air conditioning. I would love that car. And he gave us a car. It was amazing. We were so thankful. And for many people, giving away a gift is something that is a tangible expression of living sacrificially. But is that what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 12 as a result of God's mercy? And I would say maybe, but probably what Paul's referencing here is um, a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial systems that he's seeing that these former Jews are now understanding. So when they would see present your bodies as a living sacrifice, they're not thinking I need to change the way I'm living or giving or my time, but they're thinking for the last thousand plus years, we've been sacrificing something to be uh, seen as holy and presentable to God. So uh, we're not going to go too far into the Old Testament here, uh, but what when you would see Old Testament sacrifices, it wasn't that necessarily that you would sacrifice something only as an atonement, which it was, or paying the penalty for sin, but what made a sacrifice so significant in the Old Testament was, and there, this is the best way to illustrate this, would you sacrifice your sick cow or your best cow? Your best cow, right? The sacrifice is you're giving your best, and you would do it as a means of worship. So sacrifice was less about what exactly you were doing and more about the posture of your heart, which is to be as seen as worship to God. Uh, even previously, someone on the worship team or maybe Pastor Andy will say something like, let us now worship God with our tithes and offerings. You ever heard something like that? Let us worship God with something. So when you present an offering or a sacrifice, your time, your money, possession, whatever, the posture is not about the gift as much as it is about the worship that you're wanting to experience as a result of the gift. It's also interesting that Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice rather than your souls. Because we often think about the Christian life as spiritual, which it is, and Paul uses the word body. 
And I think that's important because what Paul is trying to communicate with us is it's not just one facet of your life, but it's your entire life is about a sacrifice to God. Not just your mind, not just your body, not just your soul, but your entire self. So when we talk about a sacrificial lifestyle, we talk about lifestyles a lot in our culture. Uh, diets are like a really trendy thing all the time. I don't know if they are here, at least in Evansville, in city, trendy thing. Exercise, trendy thing. And when you hear people talking about like this new lifestyle, what ends up happening is, is let's just take exercise for an example. I've, I'm one of these guys who like every January is like, this is my year. Like, this is my year. High school glory is coming back, and I'm just going to hit the gym, eat healthy, and it lasts for like a month. But for that month, it is glory. And all of my decisions come underneath this umbrella of healthy lifestyle. So the food that I eat, the way that I work out, uh, the way that I talk about things is all under this, I'm going to eat healthy, going to eat healthy, going to be healthy. And the same is true for us as Christians, when we present our bodies as a living sacrifice as a result of God's mercy, a sacrificial lifestyle comes along with this. And just like that trendy, healthy lifestyle, our lives as Christians should be falling under this umbrella of sacrificial lifestyle. So the decisions you make to the way you spend your money, to the way you talk at the dinner table, to the way you spend your Friday, Saturday night should be falling under this umbrella of a sacrificial lifestyle. Because Paul is saying, as a result of God's mercy, your life is going to now transform. This is not just about the way you worship on a Sunday morning, but it's the way you spend Monday through Saturday as well. There's an entire lifestyle. Your decisions fall underneath that umbrella of wanting to honor and please God. So that's just verse 1. That took 30 minutes. I'm not going to spend 30 minutes on verse 2. or You might get, might get bored with me and not ask me to come back. So in verse 2, Paul then switches gears and says, okay, as a result of what I've just said, appealing to the first 11 chapters of what I just wrote, talking to you about God's mercy, and saying, okay, present your body as a living sacrifice, live a sacrificial lifestyle, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what he says is, is that it's a way for us to then test ourselves. So Paul uses this word test a few times in the New Testament. I think it's a challenge to all of us believers that he's saying, test your faith. It's a hard thing to you know, talk to Americans about doing is question your beliefs, is what Paul's saying. Really put yourself to the test on what you say you believe and why you believe it. So I'm just going to take what Paul says and present it to you. Test yourself in your faith. Are, are these things true in your life? And the test that Paul's giving us here is an either or. And the either or is, are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Or are you conforming to the world around you? Are you transforming to be more like Christ? Or are you conforming to the people who are around you? Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And so maybe the best kind of litmus test for this is just asking a question. When you have an opinion or someone else has an opinion about something, does it trump what God's word says about blank subject in your life? So whatever comes to mind for you, and this could be a thousand different things, 
but what is the ruling decision maker in your life? Is it your opinion on things or is it God's word? As you study God's word for the next few weeks, some of these things might come to the surface. What is, what is the trump card in your decision making? God's word or your own opinion? And when Paul says transformed, uh, one thing seminary taught me is a little bit of Greek, and I try not to be the Greek guy who's like, Greek word means this, and Greek word mean, means this, because you just want to know what the English word means, because really I just want to know what the English word means. And the Greek word for transformed is metamorphosi, which I think is a really interesting one because Torah loved butterflies, and we know that butterflies transform, or caterpillars transform. Butterflies are the, the product of that. And so Paul's saying metamorphosi, transformed, is a result of knowing God's word. And you do that by renewing your mind. And the best way to talk about renewing your mind is talking about what is fed in to your mind. What are you putting in your mind day in, day out? Because that's going to impact whether you're being transformed or conformed. So the best way to do this is by telling your story. And i got to be careful. I, I almost want to say cut off the live stream on this story because this is, a this is a dangerous one. But it illustrates this point so good. So one time, Jen and I were in St. Louis. I was taking a class out there. I had my car, and she comes to visit me three days in. And she was driving a Volkswagen. And the person who owned this Volkswagen had a, had a Jeep or Volkswagen. She comes out. She picks me up. We go play top golf. That's a nice meal. Having the time of our lives. No kids. Super fun. And we stop at like 11 o'clock to get gas. Get out. Fill up the gas tank. Sit in the car. And as I'm about to start the car, I look at these bold letters on the gas tank. It said, unleaded fuel only. And I had filled up the car with diesel gas. And the person had gotten a new Volkswagen that was no longer a diesel. And I just assumed, who just buys a bunch of new Volkswagens? And why are they not all the same? But anyway, so I do what any millennial does, and I YouTube it, say, what do you do when you fill up your car with the wrong gasoline? And the first thing is, don't start the car. If you start the car, the gas then funnels through the engine, and the whole thing is done for. So I next am trying to you know, be an adult man and try to solve my way through this, and so I say, Jen, what do we do? And, <laughs> and th my, the first thought is, siphon the gas, right? siphon the gas. But again, I'm not like a hand, like a, you know, a handy guy. And I don't really know how to siphon gas. I don't have a hose. I'm just in St. Louis hours away trying to get back to my Airbnb so I can rest without my kids for a couple more days. So it turns out we're not going to be able to siphon the car. So then call tow trucks. Well, tow trucks don't go in to in, into St. Louis until 8 a.m. So we're stuck without a tow truck. We call it three or four tow companies. No one's coming. Car stuck at a gas pump in St. Louis. So then step three, call a mobile mechanic. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's literally just a guy who will come out and fix your car. We call like four. None are coming. Call guy five. He says, hey, I'll be there in an hour. It's going to cost you X amount of money. I'll talk him down. Talk him down a couple hundred bucks. I'm like, you know, we're running on a budget here. So an hour goes by. This guy still doesn't show up. We're just stuck at the gas pump. What are we going to do? And I'm texting him like, hey, man, like, 
we're going to have to call someone else if you, if you don't show up. She's like, no, I'll be this week. I'll be this week. I'll be this week. So another hour goes by. Van rolls up. These two guys get out, and they say, hey, we're going to need to push your car behind the gas station. It's like 1230, middle of the, middle of the night. I'm like, okay, let's do it. I got nothing to lose here except for my life, but that's all right. So we push the car behind the gas station, and uh, I'm standing out talking to these guys, and they jack up the car, and the light that they use is amazing. It was just a lamp. It was just a, a full, like, lamp that you'd put in a college dorm without the lampshade on it. And they're just like wielding it around like it's this major flashlight. And then they just dismantle the car. And I mean dismantle it. It takes about an hour. And the car is in pieces and behind a gas station. And I am terrified. This is not our car. This is not our car. It is worth far. I don't think insurance covers things like this. So I'm like, we are, we are in big trouble right now. There are pieces everywhere. I have no idea who this guy is, if he knows what he's doing or what. But anyway... We finally get the gas tank off. I don't know if you've ever seen a gas tank. I've never seen a gas tank before. It's humongous. And it is filled with gallons of diesel gasoline. And they pick up, this is no joke, this is a true story. They picked up this gas tank, carried it into someone's backyard, and just dumped the gasoline in the yard. <laughs> and I said, I have nothing to do with this. Just please fix the car. And they come, they come, they come back out. It takes another hour or so to put this car back together. And this guy honestly was amazing. I, he had no handbook, no rule book. He just shows up in a van, fixes the car. We pay him the original amount that he asked for because he saved our life. And Jen drove the car home the next day. And we, we never told the person that this happened. <laughs> so, so the car still works. The car still is good. The car's good. Don't hold that against me. So uh, we just figured, you know, if the car is going to break down, we're really going to have to, like, own this thing. But if not, hands are clean. And uh, that's what happened. So why, why did I tell the long story? But what you put into something can destroy the whole thing. Or if you put the correct thing in an engine, it'll make it run well. And the same is true for our hearts and for our soul and for our minds. And so when Paul says, renew your mind, Think intentionally about the fuel that you're putting into your mind. What are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? And I'm not the, the legalism police where I'm going to tell you uh, what you need to do and what you have to do, but just something to test yourself with. What are you putting into your mind day in and day out? Is it, are you consuming God's word on a weekly basis, on a daily basis? Is, is prayer a part of your life? I, I love prayer about, about Bill and uh, it, it takes something like, you know, you're going through a serious medical procedure, and then until someone says, man, I can feel the prayer of God's people. And the same is so true. Are you praying for God's people? People can people are affected by your prayers and impacted by them. Our ministry is, and we're, and we're thankful for them. But just test yourself. What is being put into your gas tank throughout the week? So contemplate the mercy of God. Have you experienced it? Do you know the mercy of God? As a result of experiencing that mercy, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Is your daily life falling underneath this umbrella, every decision being made as a result of this lifestyle of sacrifice? And then finally, what are you putting in? What are you putting into your, to your mind? Are you renewing your mind and being transformed rather than conformed? Let's pray.
God, we, we come before, before you, God, thinking about the debt that we owe, God, the 8.32E9 debt. And God, we think about Christ's death on the cross for our behalf, and we're so thankful. God, we're thankful that we no longer owe that debt as a result of your great mercy. God, and I pray as a result of that mercy, God, that we would be men and women in a church, God, who present ourselves as a living sacrifice to you, that we'd be holy and pleasing, and that we would love you and love one another. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.